0: In your book you use the term creative insurgency, assuring that it expresses rebellion as much as it shapes it. How do you explain this term and what are the literature and or experiences that influence you to use this term in your work?
1: Um, Thank you for this. So this is obviously, this is a central notion um, um, in the book. And it started because I was very interested in the issue of creativity in uh, political struggle in activism, in times of revolution. Um, one of the things that, that uh, I'm sure you noticed as well is at some point after the Arab uprising started, we started hearing a lot about creative resistance. Um, so um, we had, you know, Syrian art, um, um, Egyptian mural graffiti, um, uh, Tunisian rap, those were all combined under the rubric of creative resistance and creative seems to designate something that's artistic, right? Something that involves color, shape, uh, melody, word, um, something that is supposed to stir feelings in us. And to me, adding creative to resistance uh, creates an issue, which is it leaves a a residual category um, that is resistance, but that is non-creative. And to me, that's a problem. So, for instance, um, um, I thought that the way creative was used focused only on aesthetics, on issues of beauty um, um, that I've that I've just discussed, uh, and I thought this wasn't sufficient. I think for the pairing of of the creative and the insurgent or the rebellious to convey anything beyond sort of a hip nonviolent struggle, it needs a definition, and that definition needs to take creativity beyond aesthetics to incorporate action that is physical and symbolic, that is also violent and peaceful. In other words. I thought that by coupling creative with insurgency, I could accomplish that. So insurgency means um, rising and active revolt. It's, it's Latin. Uh, it came uh, through, to us through French. Um, and I think it really involves um, activities that are um, a defiance, um, that is a, a sort of an active struggle against the dominant order um, that suggests something stronger than dissent or resistance or protest but that is less in scale and in power than revolution, right? So, so I thought the uprisings could not be necessarily described as revolutions, perhaps with, with the exception of Tunisia, but insurgency I thought was sort of a, a just balance in terms of capturing uh, what was going on. The other thing that's important about insurgency is it captures what I call the two tempos of action, the two temporalities, the radical and the gradual, which which we will discuss, uh, uh, I hope we can discuss further, and that I identify in the book. So insurgencies include regular successions of low-grade ambushes, punctuated by occasional outbursts or major attacks, right? Um, and that's exactly how I argued um, creative insurgency proceeded. So you had these major... Um, acts that I call radical, like a self-immolation, uh, like Mr. Abu Azizi, that are followed by smaller acts of representational politics, of symbolic politics, where you, know, you put Mr. Abu Azizi's face on graffiti, on Facebook, uh, you use him as a symbol for oppression, all that. The other thing about insurgencies is that insurgencies are typically not recognized as worthy adversaries uh, by, by incumbent power. And Arab dictators did not recognize the revolutionaries as insurgents. They dismissed them as traitors, as terrorists, as germs, as rats, as snakes. Um, And so I think creative insurgency, the importance of the term, is that it encompasses the kind of violence that you can cause with words and songs and images, and the one that you can wreak with fire, with stones and rifle, that act together to dislodge incumbent dictators, knowing fully well that the two types of violence sustain each other, right? And so by doing so, I think I summon a broader sense of creativity um, that is applicable to art and aesthetic concerns, but that is also applicable to um, other kinds of revolutionary action, like chanting slogans, like burning your body, like spraying graffiti, like manning barricades, like fighting the police. And so in that sense, I think um, um, creativity encompasses the aesthetic, but also the physical and the political.
0: As you shared with us, you make a difference between different types of creative insurgency, radical, gradual, gradual, and even hybrid. But also in your book, you argue that even in the radical, desperate form of this activism like Burning Man, we can see hope okay. for a better future. So I would like please uh, to ask you if you can reflect more on this idea and especially with everything happening now in the Arab uh, world.
1: Yes. And so, you know, uh, one of the things to consider is um, before I can, uh, you know, a few basic things to consider before I can um, um, discuss the current situation is to think of a few attributes of what I call creative insurgency. Um, I argue that it's planned and deliberate. It's not spontaneous. Um, I argue that it um, expresses rebellion as much as it, it stimulates it. I argue that it is a social process, um, and that it combines the familiar and the foreign, the local and the global, and that it documents um, um, abuses of power, right? And in that sense, it works in the two modes, the the radical and the gradual. So just to go over it very briefly again, the radical mode of creative insurgency entails embodied life or death revolutionary action. So self-immolation is an example Um, to some extent the, the, the hunger strike is another example, although it's, it's a little longer uh, stretched out temporality, so to speak. Um, and then the gradual mode in contrast subverts uh, um, the norms of power by launching symbolic attacks on the ruler. Now, what does this tell us about uh, um, the Arab world today? Well, you know, if you look at the argument that the radical and the gradual mode intertwine, that they fuel and shape, they prod and pull each other that um, you had what I call gradual rebellion in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Syria, before the beginning of the uprising, right? These are the, the political jokes. These are the poems that circulate the discussions. And so if you think about it through the prism that the radical and the gradual modes are two different temporalities, then we shouldn't make, we shouldn't necessarily believe the argument that the Arab uprisings have completely died out. Right. That perhaps what's going on now, I mean, clearly what's going on now um, is 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 very depressing. and gets tragic. You have violence. You have um, um, a daily death toll that is enormous in in Syria. Uh, You have the return of what I call the return of the Pharaoh um, in Egypt, which is a dictatorship that is worse than what preceded uh, um, the uprising. You have violence everywhere. You have, of course, the rise of Daesh, Islamic State, that I will um, um, talk about again soon. And so it's very difficult to be optimistic. But if you consider how the radical and gradual modes intertwined um, in the Arab uprisings, then perhaps what's going on now is we're going through a long period where the gradual mode is smoldering, so to speak, where you still have jokes, you still have stories of oppression, people are still documenting what's going on. And perhaps we're awaiting one radical happening, one truly spectacular event that could trigger another wave of, of, of upheaval, of, of insurgency.
0: I'm wondering who do you hope will be the audience of your book? And is there any translations to another language?
1: Um, well, you know, the, bu- the, way, the way the book um, was written is to precisely target as wide an audience as possible. And this is done in a couple of ways. Number one, um, the book tries to be as clear as possible. I tried to write it in a way that was interesting, that would draw the le- the the reader in, and um, um and that would that would be very clear and easy to read. Um, the way I did this is in a couple of things. One, the book has very short chapters, um, as opposed to the um, traditional academic book that has anywhere between four and six or eight chapters. Um, the book has nearly forty chapters. Most of the chapters um, tell stories about individual characters. Um, the first very uh, short three chapters really lay out the conceptual argument of the book, and the others tell stories that illustrate the argument. So I have um, a story about, uh, um, um, you know, what I call the superheroes of, of the Arab uprising. So there's Al-Kahira, Al uh, Kahira, who's a... a a, a webcomic created by Dina Muhammad in Cairo, you have a Rajul al-Bakhakh, Sprayman, that existed across multiple texts in Syria. And all of these people get their own chapter, which tells a story of a character, of a superhero, and how that character inspired people um, throughout um, the very difficult days of the uprising. The second way in which this is happening uh, is I also thought a lot of students as I was writing the book. And so every sort of conceptual argument that is made is immediately um, illustrated by a very vivid example, the kind of example that students can identify with. And so I'm, I'm very much hoping that um, the book will find um, an audience among specialists, people who write about um, the Middle East, uh, people who write about revolution, people who write about activism, uh, but also the book was written for the students who uh, might use this book in their courses, but also uh, for journalists, for politicians, for generally educated readers who are interested in the world. You know, so when I was writing it, the ideal reader I had in mind was the person, th- think of the regular listener uh, of NPR, the regular national public radio listener. That was my ideal imagined reader as I was writing the book. And I hope um, this is how people will will receive it. The first couple of reviews that came out, um, um, especially one of them focused on the fact that the book is very clearly written. uh, It is written with style. It has jokes. um, And so it is an attractive reading. And I hope more reviewers and more readers will think this way.